Again, my name is Marshall Brown, one of the pastors here. Uh, Nick is actually away preaching in Iowa this uh, Sunday. And uh, the one highlight I want to have from the announcements is uh, the women's retreat on page 12. Uh, the sign-up, uh, the reason I'm mentioning it is page 12, the uh, deadline for sign-up is approaching, I think it's December 1st. Uh, this is this uh, event we do every couple years, second time we've done it. It was a couple years ago, it was spectacular, according to my wife and others. They, we go to the, Ameri- the women go to the American Club up in uh, Kohler, Wisconsin, which is, of course, beautiful and wonderful. Uh, this year, uh, the teacher is a woman named Kay Gabrish, who I've heard teach, and she is just spectacular. Um, very excited. I'm kind of jealous that I will not be there to hear her great teaching. Uh, but even more so is the, is the fellowship, the fun, all the greatness. So uh, if you're thinking about that, if you're able to do that, uh, please go online, email my wife, sign up. Page 12, the details are there. Before I pray for uh, this passage and our time together, uh, many of you know, if you've been around our church, um, of Mercy Huffman. She is a little girl uh, who was born, I think, three months premature, two months ago, so she's still before her due date. And it's just been a rough go. And so I want to pray for Mercy and for Erica and for Dave, her parents, as well as uh, her brothers. God, as we come to this text about uh, that your son teaches us about you, our good and loving Heavenly Father, we pray that those truths are written on our hearts. And we also come to you, Father, as our Heavenly Father, our good Heavenly Father, and we pound on your chest, as it were, and beg that you would have mercy on Mercy Huffman. We pray particularly for her intestines, which don't just seem to be working. God, have mercy on her. We are begging you. We are praying for Dave and for Erica and for their sons. Draw near to them, comfort them. We pray, you are our good father. And we come to you. Please, Jesus, have mercy on this little one and this family that is so dear to us. Teach us more of yourself, Lord, in this this great story of who you are as our Heavenly Father. And we pray this in the name of your Son, who makes this all possible. Amen. I've always thought that... um, If you really want to get to know someone, if you really want to get to know someone, one thing you have to know about them is about their dad. If you want to get to know someone, just say, tell me, tell me about your dad. Tell me what your father is like, was like. Tell me about your dad. Was he a good dad? Was he a bad dad? Was he an absent dad? Did you even know him? Tell me about your dad. So many times when we hear the stories of our moms and our dads, you can make the pieces fit of a person's life. We've been in a sermon series this fall, Jesus Unexpected, the Gospel of Luke. And in November, we have been in a little mini-series we're calling Jesus' Greatest Hits, the parables of Jesus, Jesus' Greatest Hits. And today, we kind of come to the greatest hit of them all in many ways, Uh, either last week or this week. I don't know. I think it's actually this week. Uh, The greatest hit in Jesus' repertoire, his number one best-selling album, uh, the parable most commonly called the prodigal son or the two sons or the prodigal God, 
this story from Luke 15. Years ago, I think it was in the 19th century this first happened, but a New Testament scholar said that this story is the gospel in the gospel. It gets to the heart of the matter. If you were to ask me to summarize the gospel of Jesus uh, with a verse from the New Testament, I would probably quote to you Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, so that no one can boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That's a great summary. Those are verses. But if you were to ask me to tell you, what does that story feel like? What does that story look like? I would say, well, let me tell you a story about a man who had two sons. And I would tell you this story, because in so many ways, maybe even better than those verses which are so theologically precise in Ephesians, this story is a summary of the Christian gospel and of God's love for us. You know, there's something about stories that bring us in, and that's the reason I want to tell you the story instead of quote the verse to you, because stories, they get to us. Uh, they invite us to live within them, to live inside. All of us have fathers, for instance. I mean, this story. You either have a father or your life is marked by the absence of your father. All of us have either been a rebellious child or a duty-bound ethical rule keeper. Many, if not all of us, have been both. All of us have either left home or not. And all of us long for that feeling of home. And all of us at different times, maybe this morning, have felt like exiles from home, wanting to go home. But this story, uh, I would also want to tell you this story because in many ways, this is, as I've studied, this is Jesus, uh, Kenneth Bailey, who's probably a great scholar on Luke 15. Kenneth Bailey uh, says in many ways, this story it is the retelling of the story of Israel. This is Jesus saying, this is the story of God's people. This is the story of Jacob and of Israel. And another way you could say this, Jesus is kind of telling the story of the whole world, of you and me, of children who long to be reconciled to their God. But above all, Jesus is telling us in this story, he's telling us what his dad is like. He is telling us what his heavenly father, his God his Father, our God, our Father, is like. Now, but this story, as all stories have the potential to be, this story is also a great diagnostic tool. It's a diagnostic tool for us to examine our own hearts. This is kind of the equivalent uh, of like a home COVID test. Sorry for the bad memory, but a home COVID test uh, that tells you about yourself and specifically about the ways that we, you, I, are ailing and lost. There's perhaps no text more associated with the ministry of Tim Keller than Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. I mean, Tim Keller's written a book on this passage. Uh, you should read it if you have not. It doesn't take too long. It's short. Uh, and Tim Keller, uh, one of the things he makes a point about in, the, in this story is he says that there's two primary ways to move through life. There's two primary ways. He's actually riffing on a Danish uh, philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. But there's two primary ways to move through life. The first is what he calls the pathway of self-discovery. The pathway of self-discovery. This is the path in this story of the younger son who leaves home, who does what feels good to himself, trying to find himself, as it were, in the far country. That's one pathway. The pathway of self-discovery. Then there's the pathway of moral conformity. In this story, the path of the older brother who stays home, 
obeys the rules, takes responsibility for his family and for others. And as Keller brilliantly points out over books and sermons, that those are both ways that we can actually get away from God. Here's what I mean. Tim Keller defines sin, and I think right, rightly, is essentially wanting to get away from God. Not wanting God to be our Lord. We want to be our own Savior. We want to deny that Jesus is Lord. We want to control our own life. And fundamentally, there are two ways to try to control your own life. One is to break all the rules and to get away from God. But the other way, another way to get away from God and control your own life is actually to keep the rules. To keep the rules as a way of staying away from God, trying to control God by your moral performance. The great uh, Southern writer Flannery O'Connor puts in the mouth of one of her characters, Hazel Motes, who says uh, that he had the sneaking suspicion, Hazel Motes, this fictional character, that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Two ways to go through life, self-discovery, blatant sinning, or moral conformity. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the three characters in the story and see that there are two ways to get lost But above all, there is a seeking, searching, loving Father who comes after all of us in our lostness. But first, let's look at the younger son, the path, as it were, of self-discovery. Now look with me in the passage in front of you, verses 12 and following. The younger son wants to get out. He's done with home. He wants to get out. So he asks for his share of the inheritance. And according to the laws and and the traditions of 2,000 years ago, a younger son was due one-third of the inheritance. The older son got two-thirds, younger son got one-third. And so he's saying, give me my one-third. And when he does that, he's saying functionally, Dad, give me your money. I don't want you. I want your stuff. As many commentators point out, what the son is functionally saying to the father with his words and his actions is, Dad, you're dead to me. I don't care about you. I want your stuff so I can do what I want to do. So he takes the money and run. He moves away. And as the story tells, he blows his money in wild living. Now, it's easy to read this story and to think that the main problem was the prostitutes and the cocaine and the meth and the yachts. But if you skip to the refrain of the story, I don't know why I put yachts in that list, but... um, (laughs) It's on the Mediterranean, I don't know. Uh, uh, But if you skip ahead to the refrain of the story, see what the father says about the son. He says, verse 24 and 32, he says it two different ways, but it's the same idea. He was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The The categories that the father gives are relational. They are not moral, not primarily. The father does not mention the drugs or the booze or the women. He mentions the relationship, saying that my son made himself dead to me. He was lost from me. Not the morality, but the relationship. Yes, absolutely, sin does include immorality. But fundamentally, sin is about breaking relationship with God our Father. Consider the Ten Commandments. In many ways, this story is a riff on the Ten Commandments. The first commandment, the first commandment is the most important. And what is the first commandment? We just recited, we just confessed our sins. You shall have no other gods before me. Which is simply saying, God is God, and we are to treat him as such. But every time we break another commandment, we are also breaking the first commandment. 
If you steal something, you are denying that God is your provider. If you lie, you're denying that God can be trusted. You're denying that God can be trusted with the truth. If you commit adultery, you're rejecting God's plan for your body and for marriage. And the younger son's main fault is saying to his father, you are dead to me. That is the sin beneath the sin. And it is worth asking, what are the areas of your life where you're throwing off restraint, a path of self-discovery, saying to God, not here, don't touch this. Maybe it's sexuality, maybe it's wealth, maybe it's with your friends. But the more important question to ask is not what is the sin, but what is the sin beneath the sin? Sin is like an iceberg, and if you know this about icebergs, a third of an iceberg is above the waterline, but two-thirds is below the waterline. And it's the two-thirds that are below that can really wreck your life. Because beneath the outward and obvious sins is the real darkness, the darkness that shakes its fist at God and does not want Him. One quick example, pornography. The above the waterline sin is obvious. Trading intimacy for a quick thrill with a picture. But beneath the waterline, beneath the waterline is a rejection of God and his ordering of the world and a rejection of God that leads to objectifying other people and using them for your own pleasure. What is the sin beneath the sin that can wreck your life? God cares about your morality but first and foremost, he cares about his relationship. When our story here, the young man comes to the end of himself. He's first to work on a pig farm, which would have been abhorrent to a kosher Jew. And he eats the pods that were for the pigs. And then in verse 17, thankfully, though he comes to his senses, it says, and he heads home. And his reasoning is this, is that my dad will not maybe accept me as his son, but he will accept me as his servant. And at least I can eat. And so he turns and goes back home. Now it's important, there is a misreading of this parable that places the emphasis on the son's turning. It puts all the emphasis on him. But to treat this parable as turning on the son's turning is moralistic, it is anti-gospel, and it is just wrong. Hear me clearly, what causes the son to turn towards home is the memory of being loved. He remembers his father's love. Which is another way of saying this is the son's repentance does not cause the father's love. The father's love prompts the return. This morning we just baptized little Riley Ruth. She was marked as belonging to God, beloved of God. And if, God forbid, she wanders away, Ian and Hannah's hope will always be that she remembers that she is loved by them and above all, loved by God. It is love that prompts repentance. As we will see several times this morning, God's love is always greater and it is always prior. But that's the, older, the younger son. Let's look now quickly at the older brother, the path of moral conformity. And it's vital to see, and it's the reason I had this printed or, or had Jill read the first part of the chapter. Look at the beginning of the chapter. So important to see who Jesus is speaking to. Let me read again verses 1, 2, and 3. Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. 
Which is to say, this is important to hold in mind, Jesus tells this story for the sake of religious leaders, for the sake of elder brothers. I mean, one reason I think it's a mistake to call this parable the parable of the prodigal son is that the reason and the focus of this parable is not the prodigal, but the older brother. But back to our story. Verses 23 to 24, there's this massive party. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But as the party is raging, verses 25 to 32, the elder son who's out working for his father, basically paying for the party, he's out in the field, there's a party raging, and he says, what is going on in there? He asks one of the servants, verse 25 and following, what is going on? And the servant says to him, your brother has returned, and your dad has killed the fatted calf for him. In verse 28, he was angry and refused to go in. And so his father goes out to his old, what a lovely scene. He leaves the party and goes out to his older son, pleading for him to come into the party. But the older son is livid. Read with me verses 29 and following. Look, these many years I served you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He is seething. He does not even call his dad his father. He just says, you. And he won't even name his brother. He dismissively, he doesn't say my brother. He says, this son of yours. And in his own sad and angry way, this older brother is also lost to his father. Because not unlike his younger brother, he wants the father for his possessions, not for himself. He does all this good so that he can get from his father, and he has missed the relationship. He thought the way to get what he wanted from God, from the father, excuse me, was hard work and obedience. I mean, verse 29 is so sad to me. Look, these many years I served you and never disobeyed. He is lost and does not know it. He thinks his moral performance is what will get him the favor and the possession he wants. But God is not primarily interested in moral performance. He wants our hearts. Hosea 6 says, I desire love, not sacrifice. And then King David. King David in the Jewish scriptures, a great example of how God wants our hearts more than our moral performance. King David was an atrocious person at times in his life. And at one occasion, he committed both adultery and murder to hide his adultery, frankly. He committed adultery and murder. And when he comes to confess that sin, he eventually comes to confess those sins. And this is what he writes. For God, you do not, this is Psalm 51, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Above all, God wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. He wants a relationship. Thursday night, I had the uh, opportunity to go to the uh, play over at the Winnetka uh, Community Center, the uh, Winnetka Children's Theater, uh, and saw so many of you, so many children performing, uh, so many parents and families. I actually, it's new to me, a whole new world to me. All this uh, theater world is great. And, it, and there was really a well-done performance, and the, and the parents and the, all the crowd, we roared our approval. Mary Poppins, we roared our approval. But as I was watching those students on stage, our children on stage, I thought, that, you know, there's two ways to act in front of your parents if you're an actor. 
There's a couple ways to act. If you feel like you need their approval, you're going to do your best to try to get that approval. But there's another way to act. And that's knowing that you have that approval. And so you act freely and joyously, right, as a gift to your parents and the audience. And friends, there is a grave danger with our good deeds and our moral performance that we, can, that we can do those things to earn God's favor and it can look and feel religious. But the elder son, his obedience, his performance is not for God. It is for himself. He's using God to get what he wants or trying to use the father, I should say, to get what he wants. Tim Keller illustrates it this way. Uh, if there was, a, there was a gardener who grew a great and beautiful and large carrot. A carrot. And he came to the king of the realm, and as a token of respect and of love, he gives the carrot to the king. And the king is so moved, he says, you know, you are such a good steward of the land. Let me give you more land to add to your garden, to add to your farm, so that you might tend it. And so in, term for, in return for a carrot, he gets more land. There was a nobleman who overheard this, and he said, well, if the king will give land for a carrot, I'll give him something greater. I'll give him one of my stallions. And so he did. He gave the king his stallion, and the king thanked him, but gave him no more, gave him no land. And the nobleman was perplexed, and the king explained, the gardener gave the carrot to me. You are giving the horse to yourself. You see, friends, for elder brothers, our good deeds are not done for God, but they are done for ourself. And beneath the good works, there is oftentimes a seething anger, a resentment, a sense that I deserve, the feeling that God owes something. Actually, there's a feeling that everybody owes me something. Older brothers like this can think they are better than everybody else, they're judgmental. They lack joy. I should say we. Uh, I lack joy. Prayer lives become stale. Elder brothers are guilt-ridden and insecure, fearing their efforts are never enough. Oftentimes in conversation, they are simply not emotionally present because they're always doing a mental calculation about how they are presenting themselves. What comes next? They can be horrific to live with. This older son is lost, and he doesn't even know it. And so I have to ask, in your moral performance, in your moral performance, have you lost a vital relationship with God your Father? But here's the thing I love about this story. Because, you know, there's so much, especially in the Gospel of Luke, about tax collectors and uh, prostitutes and sinners. And, you know... As for me personally, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm literally a religious leader and literally an elder brother. I mean, my rebellion stories, they're kind of cute. Like, you know, oh, that's really sweet. That you, you, know, you stole some sugar, Marshall. That's really sweet. And honestly, sometimes all these tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, I can feel left out of the good news. But this story, this story is for people like me. This story is for people like me. And Jesus doesn't come to these religious leaders to blow them up. He comes to invite them into the party. So let's look third and finally at the Father. Consider this Father who is our Heavenly Father. Because in the first half of the story, his younger son goes away, basically wishes the Father's death. 
And the first thing, and there's not many, I think it's dangerous to take a story like this and not have parenting advice, but I do think this is interesting and, and, and wise for parents. The first thing this father does is he allows his adult son to leave. He doesn't hold him in. That's a parenting note. He lets him leave, trusting that he knows that he's loved. But the whole while that he is gone, the whole while that his son is gone, the father holds on to that son in his heart. And I love verse 20. It says, and when the son starts to come back, verse 20, he says, while he was a long way off, his father saw him. And if you're a parent, you understand that. You can look at a great distance, and there's a crowd of children, and you can see your child's silhouette. You know them. There's my son. There is my son. And this man looks across the horizon. He sees the silhouette. He says, there's my son. He's coming home. And what does he do? He picks up his robes and he runs. He picks up his robes and he runs. It was considered undignified for an old man to run, but he does. And before his son can say anything, this is so important, the prior love of God, before he can say anything, what does the old man do? He embraces and kisses his son. You see, friends, it's always prior God's love. God's love and kindness lead us to repentance. After he's been embraced, after he's been kissed, the son tries to make a speech about how he's going to be a servant. You know, he's like, yeah, I'm going to be a servant for you. And his father cuts him off. He says, put a robe on him, marking his distinction. Put a ring on his finger. That marks his authority. Put sandals on his feet. Free people did not walk around without shoes. And then he orders a party, the fatted calf, to be slaughtered. And then the first time of the refrain, verse 24, For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's celebrate. Let's have a party. Friends, if you have been living in the far country, I've had people tell me, I, if, if God knew what I did, if you knew what I did, he'd never accept me. Really? No. God accepts sinners. Grasp this picture of a father who doesn't come back and say, you know, you should have done better, but I'll take you back in. No, he runs to him, embraces him, kisses him, throws him a party. If you have the thought, my sin is too great, read this story. Your sin is not too great. Your sin is not too great. One of my favorite stories, I've called it, I think at least twice, but it bears repelling. If you haven't heard it, this is one of my favorite all-time stories. Tony Campolo. Tony Campolo is a famous preacher from Pennsylvania. And he was doing a conference in Honolulu, Hawaii. And because he's from Pennsylvania and he's in Hawaii, he can't sleep. And so he goes to the diner at 2 in the morning. And around 2.30, a group of women start pouring in. And then they file back out at 3.15. And they're talking. And one of the women, it's her birthday the next day. Her name is Renee. And it's her birthday. And she's talking about how no one has ever thrown her a birthday party. And the other women are kind of... They're kind of patting her on the back and saying, oh, I'm so sorry, you've never had a birthday. I hope you have a good one tomorrow, you know. And, uh, and then they file out. The women file out, and, and Tony Campola is still there with his coffee trying to, you know, manage the time difference. And he turns to the diner owner. He said, who were those women? And he said, uh, those, were, those are prostitutes, and they've just gotten off their shift, and now they're going home. And he said, you hear that? that one of the women, it's their birthday tomorrow. Yeah, he said, yeah, Renee, she's here every night. He's, they're here every night? Yeah, they're here every night. Oh. So Tony Campolo gets this idea. He knows he can't sleep the next night, so what's he do? He goes and buys a birthday cake, brings it to the diner at 2 in the morning. The women come in. He sings happy birthday to Renee. He gives her the cake. She holds it in her hands. She's never had a birthday party before. She doesn't know what to do. She grabs the cake and runs out the door. And so diner owner, pastor, and a bunch of prostitutes in the middle of the night, birthday girl is gone. 
Awkward moment. What do preachers do in an awkward moment? Let's pray. <laughs> and that's uh, all Tony Capola knows to say or do. And he prays for Renee and he prays for the women and, you know, amen. And the diner owner is incensed. He said, I didn't know you were a preacher. What church did you come from? And he says, I'm from the church that throws parties for prostitutes in the middle of the night. Friends, friends, you can't outrun God's love. He throws, he throws parties for prostitutes and he throws parties for all of us. But this is not the end of the story. This is not the end of the story. Because the, our God, this father, is not done. He has run down the road towards this one son, but he's got one other son to go after. Because not only does he run down that road, he also runs after his elder son. Because when he hears in the middle of this party, he's throwing this party. Imagine his joy. His son is home. But he hears that he has another son who is outside, who is angry and unwilling to come into the party. And the father leaves the party, goes out into the dark field to invite that older son. He leaves the party. And he heard, you've heard, I read earlier, the anger and the spite of that older brother, the spite towards his brother, the spite towards his father. But this is the father's response. He said, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Do you see what this father is doing? He is going into the darkness to invite the elder brother into the party. I've heard a lot of sermons on Luke 15, but my favorite is by a friend of mine, an old friend of mine named Albert Shem. And Albert has got a poetic, he's got a poet's heart. And here's how he summarized this story, and this was the closing line. I'll never forget this, the closing line of his sermon on this text. He says, there goes that father down another road after another son. There goes that father down another road after another son. He doesn't, you see, the thing that moves me here, look back to verses 1 and 2. These men, he's telling this story and inviting to the party, the religious leaders, they're grumbling a few days later, they are going to try and succeed in killing him. And he is talking to those people who are grumbling. He's talking to them as elder brothers, and he is inviting them into the party. He tells a story that is not an announcement of judgment, but an invitation to a party. Because friends hear this, the church of Jesus Christ does throw birthday parties for prostitutes in the middle of the night. But the church of Jesus Christ also invites and makes room for elder brothers, for moralists, for the self-righteous, and thank God for that. Friend, this is a story of a father who goes to sons who are lost in different ways and welcomes them to the party. Welcomes them to the party. Do, how do you need to come home? Who do you need to throw a party for? Who do you need to accept their love, the love of our God? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this story that this never keeps, never, never disappoints. It always keeps giving. We can always look at this story and see ourselves and see your great unfathomable love. Thank you, Jesus, that you wanted to tell us about your father, that you wanted to open a way for us to him, to welcome us into his arms and into his party. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.